Over the last few months, um, I've been making my way through a podcast. Some of you know I've been talking about this ad nauseum. Uh, It comes from Christianity Today, and it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. This podcast is hosted by Mike Cosper, tracks the rise, the the ascent to kind of dominance and fall of a church called Mars Hill. Uh, It was found in Seattle, Washington. It was one of the most, I would say, one of the most evangelical churches in America in the 21st century pastor at the time was Mark Driscoll. Some of you may have heard that name before. (laughs) He was often called the cussing pastor. If you haven't listened to it, I would encourage you to give it a try, because while the story is about Mars Hill, many of the themes are transferable to numerous other examples of churches. Churches that have a tendency to put production and charisma above what it means to follow the way of Jesus. Now, in one of these episodes, Mike Cosper is interviewing Jesse Bryan, who is the former creative director of the church. And Jesse shares a beautiful story about an event from church history that I wanted to pass on this morning. So Jesse is a bit of a history buff. When they would go on location to different countries to, uh, to, to shoot some footage for, uh, uh, you know, Mars Hill videos, he was able to kind of uh, pepper the tour guides with questions. And these tour guides were basically like experts, scholars for these ancient relics that they would go to visit. And one of them was a church called, a site called the Hagia Sophia. I believe it's a mosque now in Turkey. But back in church history, it was a church considered by many to be one of the ancient wonders of the world. The church was so beautiful that it was the envy of many. And in the 5th century, there was a Roman Empire emperor named Arcadius. And Arcadius wanted to honor his wife, And so he desired to put a statue of her in this beautiful church, this, you know, ancient wonder of the world. Now, the bishop of the church was a guy, if you've followed or read any church history, there's a man by the name of John Chrysostom, who was known as a great preacher. He was the bishop there in the city. And he said no. He's like, you're not taking your statues in this holy space. So the emperor, in response, excommunicates him, banishes him from the Roman Empire. The emperor basically said, now that this bishop is gone, I'm going to come back tomorrow, and and this statue is, is getting put, getting placed in that church. That night, the congregation burned the church to the ground. Reflecting on the story, Jesse says this, and I quote, the emperor miscalculated. He thought those people cared about the building. That was a bad move. He didn't understand that they were playing a different game. They actually believed in something. And they were willing to sacrifice the church for it. And so they burnt one of the ancient wonders of the world to make a point, don't bring your statues into our building. Now the story highlights something that I want us to consider over the next few weeks. What is the church? So over the next four weeks, this week and the three following, I want to give us a defining vision and purpose for the local church. So this week, we're going to look at the question, what is the church? Try to bring some definition to it. Next week, we will look at who is the church. Two weeks from now, we'll look at some of the rhythms of the church. And lastly, what is the church for? What is its purpose? Additionally, over the past month, I read and digested a book by Sky Jatani called What If Jesus Was Serious About the Church? It's a real short, it's a real fun book. He's got like little doodles. 
at the start of every chapter. We might actually see some of those uh, this morning and the next couple of weeks. But that book helped to, um, you know, shape some of what I'm going to be talking about this morning and over this next month. So this week, as I said, I want us to hone in on a definition of the church. Now, in the English language, when we use the word church, it can mean a few different things. There's four definitions that I'm going to talk about this morning, two of which I would suggest are not the most biblical. I don't think we find them, at least in the New Testament. And two of them are found in Scripture. So let's take a look at them. So when we use the word church, one of the definitions that we use is a reference to a building, right? A physical structure that houses religious activities. You know, let's say you're going to Dixon Middle School. You might tell someone, you know, if you're coming down Monongahela, turn left at the library, go to the stop sign, turn right at that church, and it'll be right in front of you. Or Lord willing, next month you walk by uh, with your walking button, you say, that church is getting some roofing work done. We desperately need some roofing work done. You've got that old nursery rhyme, right? Here is the church, here is the steeple, open it up and see all the people. Right? In the rhyme, the church is described as that building that houses the people. Now, this is a definition of church that is non-existent in the biblical understanding. Because the earliest churches didn't have their own spaces. Christianity was illegal in the Roman Empire until the fourth century. So you weren't going to have any buildings dedicated to the worship of Jesus at that time. Believers gathered together, meeting in the homes of one another. But that meeting place, the location, was not called the church. Now, this is why I find that opening story of the Hagia Sophia so compelling. Because there are many places where that building of the church becomes so enmeshed with the idea of what a church is. The building burns down. Christians are barred from entering it. It doesn't mean that you cease to be the church. Emperor Arcadius miscalculated. He thought that what the followers of Jesus were really passionate about was this building rich in beauty and architecture. But those early Christians understood that their passionate and orthodox worship of God was more important than any building could ever be. But you know, I think you actually see this in our generation as well. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of churches that have split over what color carpet to put down. Is the color carpet, whether it's red or gray or whatever, purple it might be, is that really the focus of what church ought to be? We might have our preferences, but that's not the church as the New Testament describes it. Now, in saying this, I'm not saying that using the word church to describe a physical building is wrong. It's a modern definition of the word, but it's important to make sure that we aren't conflating our modern understanding of a physical building with that biblical understanding or concept of a church. All right, let's move into the second meaning. We use the term church to describe an event that we attend. Did you go to church last Sunday? We start church at 10.30 a.m., and I think this is one of the most prevalent ways that we think about the concept of the church, an event that is to be attended. Now, this mindset fits very well in 
the particular norms of the 21st century American culture. Because we are living in a society that is primarily built upon the presupposition of individualism. It's so easy for us to live our lives in silos. Right? We work hard to bring home an income, which we feel is ours. We mind our own business. We try to avoid relying on anyone else because we don't want to be a burden to them. There's a high value in our society of taking care of yourself. I've shared it before that I think it's, uh, there, there's worth that is often attributed to those who are contributing to society. Shame, inversely, is often uh, placed upon those who, you know, might be down on their luck and are relying on others. That they're considered a drain to society. Now, what does all this have to do with church? Well, in a culture where we are focused on the self, individualistic, every encounter we have is commodified. Facebook and Twitter algorithms want to give us the best possible experience, so we keep coming back. Some might suggest that it's actually a little addicting. Google and Yelp reviews can make or break a business. Even our phones collect private data in an effort to make a buck, all in the name of creating a contextually relevant marketing platform for us. Oftentimes, our attitude towards church is no different. We think about church, or when we think about church as an event, we start to look at it through the lens of that individualistic consumerism. Church becomes about whether or not the music made me feel a certain way emotionally or if the sermon was engaging or entertaining. Or if there's conflict in that church, I have the ability to leave and never come back, and therefore I remain in safety, avoiding having to engage in tough conversations. Right? Church is often boiled down into quantifying what we give or what we get. But this mindset would have been foreign to the authors of Scripture. Right? The church was not something that you would attend, but something that you were, something that you are. And so we'll circle back to that understanding in a little bit. Here again, I think Sky Jatani does a good job of communicating this in pictures. Right here, he shows the difference between kind of American spirituality, American culture, and what the New Testament teaches. How often have you heard someone share that you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus? If faith only boils down to my reconciliation with God. Now, sure, maybe there's some like love of neighbor thrown in there, but we have a tendency to read the Bible through the lens of the grammar of the first person singular, where he's using second person here, but we often, you know, the, the I, the me, the mine. But as you read through the Bible, the New Testament teaches a collective Christianity. It's not just about me and God but it's about a community that God has redeemed a people, not a person, or not merely a person. When you look at the language of the Bible, you see this. It's in the first person plural, right? The, the prayer that, that Jesus taught us pr to pray, the Lord's Prayer. It's not my Father, but it's our Father. In much of Paul's writings in the church, he didn't, you know, he used that second person form of you. But we have our devotional readings, and think that Paul is speaking to, directly to me. You know, Chris Ansel right now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we think about you in that first, per, or excuse me, second person singular. But in most cases, Paul is writing to a community. 
he's writing in the plural form of those words, but we can't see that in English. What we really need is we really need a Pittsburghese translation of the Bible, right, that adequately makes this distinction known. You know, Philippians 1, 1 to 2 would say something like this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, grace to yins and peace from God our Father. Anytime you see that yins, you'd know, all right, it's a collective, it's not just me. As I was thinking about this dichotomy between individualistic and collective faith, a story came to mind from our late beloved sister, Helen McCombs. You know, those of you who knew her knew that she grew up in the hood. Helen knew what it was to be poor. I don't even remember the subject that we were discussing at small group, but something that Helen said stuck with me. She said that if you live in a poor community, you don't tell your neighbors that you don't have any food in the house. She said, if you let that out, the next thing you know, people are pouring in to give you cooked meals and food from their own limited resources. She would describe how the poor would care for one another. They'd support one another, not out of abundance, but out of their scarcity. These folks formed a collective with one another. And honestly, it was kind of shocking to me because I think it's a very different perspective from that middle or high upper class perspective, which often puts such value on self-reliance. And I know I've gotten a little bit off the path from seeing Church of Events as an event, but a lot of these themes are entwined together. All right, the third way that we might consider the church is as an organization— Now, it's important to acknowledge that this is one of the biblical definitions, the way the Bible does talk about the church. You can see several examples of organizational principles in Scripture. You have the formation of the office of deacon in Acts chapter 6. You have the requirements for holding the position of elder in 1 Timothy 3. Even some of the rhythms of the early church structure in Acts chapter 2, which we'll circle back to that in two weeks, right, the rhythms of the church. The Bible does talk about the church as organizational structures, but I would suggest that it's nothing like the organizational structures, the organizational machine that we have produced in the 21st century. It's pretty common uh, in this day and age to seek wisdom for church growth and organization from the business world. I remember early in ministry reading a book by business guru Jim Collins called Good to Great. And in the book, Collins had broken down a bunch of data to to 12 principles that rose to the surface, that all of these principles were found in some of the longest-running companies in the last few decades. The book was a business book. But we were encouraged to think about these business trends and see if there was certain alignments with how we would, you know, put them into practice in our particular ministry focus. And this is the age that we live in, the age of megachurches, The age of mission and vision statements is the foundation of church. Celebrity pastors, right? Church planting teaches certain organizing principles that aren't based upon scripture, but best practices from the business world, from corporations. Richard Halverson, he was the former chaplain to the United States Senate, described the cultural shift in this way. He said, in the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centered on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to to America, where it became an enterprise. 
Now, I'm not saying that this is all bad. Right? Here at Restoration Church, we have a vision statement which highlights four easy-to-remember words. We want to be a place where people can belong, grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, worship together, and engage the neighborhood in which you're rooted. If you forget what that is, just read the back of Robbie's shirt. It's on it. Right? In that sentence, there's four words that hopefully rise to the top, communicating how we want to do ministry. To belong, grow, worship, and engage. But too often, mission and vision become an idol of the church. I hear all the time the King James Version of Proverbs 29, 18 quoted. They say, where there is no vision, the people perish, and we use that as an excuse to kind of go all in on this vision, this, this formation of a vision for the church. And that vision then becomes the foundation of our churches. But that's not what the Bible says ought to be the foundation. The Bible doesn't say that the pastor or our vision or our structure or our mission is the foundation of the church. The Bible is clear that the foundation of our church is Jesus Christ. Paul makes this clear. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 11, he says this. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, this is important because this is the time where Paul is writing to 1 Corinthians. What's going on in that church is there's factions. There's people who say, you know what, I'm a disciple of Paul, and other people say, I'm a a disciple of Apollos, another missionary that would have been there, another pastor was there. And Paul's saying, look, I don't want, I don't, you know, we, we don't need any of this conflict between like these factions of who follows which leader. Jesus is our leader. That's what he's saying. Again, it, it doesn't mean that we don't put forth mission statements or vision. It doesn't mean that we don't organize ourselves in a certain way. But if those things become the focus and not Jesus, I think we, we've lost. Actually, I, you probably can't really read this one, but there's a, here, here's another uh, one of these doodles. He's got two tre- trees and the church The foundation, the root system on Jesus on the left has the fruits of the Spirit, but the mission is the foundation. What do you get? Fatigue, anger, jealousy, fear, stress. It's oftentimes what happens when those things become the governing principles is they they direct how you do ministry, burning people out. While the church is an organization, it's not held together and supported by our mission statement or core values. Its foundation is Jesus Christ. Again, all these organizing principles are important, but if we build on that foundation, it will inevitably crumble. I already referenced this podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, but it is a cautionary tale of when a church is built on the foundation of a very talented pastor instead of a community seeking to follow Jesus. Time and time again, when mission and reach becomes the central focus of a church, fame replaces virtue. And that's really dangerous ground to be walking in. All right, let's move to the final definition of the church. And again, this isn't that the other definitions are wrong per se, but I, I've saved this one for last because I think there's something weighty, there's something important to this definition. The last meaning of church in the English language and found most readily through the New Testament is that the church is a community of people living together in union with Jesus Christ and each other. And let me say that again, that the church is a community of people living together in union with Jesus Christ and each other. 
Now, if you're reading the New Testament and you stumble upon the word church in English, almost universally when you see that, that word church, it's translating the Greek word ekklesia. It comes from ek, which means out from, and from the root kaleo, which means to call. So the word ekklesia literally doesn't, it doesn't mean church, at least not the way that we understand it, like a building. Ekklesia literally means the called out ones. The word is ultimately describing not a building or an organization, but a group of people that God has called out of the world and called to himself and his kingdom. It isn't the building, it's not the worship service, it's not the programs, it's not the organizational principles that carry the Spirit of God, but the people. Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you're not your own. We are the ones who are the vessels of God's Holy Spirit, God's presence. Structures and programs are important, but they are there to support the mission of God to his people. As I said earlier, God has not just redeemed a person, but a people, a collective, a community. We're on this journey towards Jesus together. Our structures and programs ought to point to that truth. Consider the author of the book of Hebrews. You may have heard this passage cited before, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. The author says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, this passage has been used uh, countless times to highlight the importance of going to church. Church is something that we ought to attend. It's good for us to participate in. The Bible tells us don't give up on these gatherings, but we can't stop there. Yes, it is an exhortation to continue to meet and gather together, but, what, but for what purpose? The passage continues, to encourage one another, especially as you see the day drawing closer. The purpose of these gatherings is to be a touch point in our lives where we can receive encouragement from God, we can be a source of hope and reassurance to one another as we journey as redeemed people of the cross. Now, I know this morning I've shared a very idealized perspectives of the church. The truth is there is no perfect church. There's that old adage that if you, you know, find the perfect church, as soon as you start going, it's not going to be perfect anymore, right? There is no perfect church. Surely we here at Restoration Church, we miss the mark. We're far from perfect. But I want to give us a vision of what church ought to be, inviting us not to attend an event that fulfills some need within us, but acknowledging that all of us together make up this particular local church. How are we together turning our eyes to see the work that God wants to do in and through us as a community? Now, next week, we're going to talk a little bit more into the shape of that community. Who is that community? Because let me tell you, the gospel is radical for life. 
bringing reconciliation in places that no one expected it to come when it first happened. So we'll talk a little bit more about that community next week. But I want us to invite us to reconsider how we think about the church. Once more, let's listen to the wisdom of Sky Jatani. I feel like he should be yeah, giving me royalties for name-dropping him so much. He said this. He said, and I quote, We are called to be an incarnate community in a world of digital avatars. A household of healing amid a culture of anger and division. And a surrogate family where a generation of spiritual orphans can find the love of Christian mothers and fathers, sisters, and brothers, which ultimately points to the love of God himself. He continues, but at precisely the moment when our society badly needs the church to rediscover the value of being a family, it has scoffed at, su- at the simple vision to chase after the dehumanizing values of corporations instead. If that's not hope for what the church could be, I don't know what is. So I want, us to, invite, I want to invite us to con- consider what it means to journey together as the church. And in the next few weeks, we'll continue to unpack that considering the place of the church in our lives and in broader society. Let's consider, let's think about what it means to be the church, not just go to church. So as I've done in the past, I want to give us some reflection questions each week. And I'll post these on Facebook uh, probably tomorrow or Tuesday. The, The hope in these, even if you just look at them, you know, write them down or go to Facebook once or twice in the week, it just gives us a touch point to understand, to think about these things. Because what's real easy, I mean, I did this for years, is you go to, to a church service, you hear the sermon, maybe even take some notes. In fact, I still have binders of notes that I took at uh, the church I went to in college. And you know what? I've never once opened that up to go back and look at it. But if we, if we have these touch points to think, to keep thinking about this, not walk out this door, forget it, and be like, all right, are the Steelers going to beat the Bengals today? You know, that's, that's what some of us are going to be focused on a little bit later, or the rain, and when can I cut the grass? So the reflect. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going on a long tangent here about these reflection questions. The point of them is just to be a touch point that we can be continuously ruminating, mulling over some of these themes. So this week, think about this. Anytime you use the word church, identify which of those four de- definitions are you using it as. Are you describing a building? Are you describing an event? Are you describing like the institution, organization? Or are you describing the community, the body of believers? And, you know, kind of tally that up in your head. And just, just notice those trends, right? What might that reveal about your perspective of the church? Again, you don't, I mean, if you want to like actually have a notepad that you're like putting tally marks, that's fine. You can do that. You know, I know in, in, uh, in, in my counseling, my uh, regular counseling, we t- often talk about me noticing how my body is feeling. It's kind of like that, right? Just kind of take inventory of it as you go about the week. Let it kind of set off that, that like notice and then see what trends you pull out of that. All right, here's the second question. In what ways has, or have, I don't know, I'm not very good at grammar. In what ways have the self has, it is has, okay, I was right. In what ways has the self-reliance of American culture impacted the way you interact with the community of the church. And I, I described how as when we think about church as an event, it, it kind of comes down to this 
commodification of church. So how have those uh, themes, how have those influences affected the way that we think about it? And lastly, here's kind of the, just the question to think about. Why or why not? In light of the message, do you think it is plausible to follow Jesus without participating in the local church? And this comes because I, I get, you know, I'm a pastor. I talk to people all the time um, about church. And I have, there's a lot of people that say, I am spiritual but not religious. And by that they mean I have a personal relationship with God, uh, but I don't need to be connected to anything broader. That, that's oftentimes what I hear. And I, I would argue that I actually don't think that that is how the New Testament teaches us to be a follower of Jesus, right? We're not siloed. We are meant to be part of a collective. But think about that. That's, so that's, that's my answer to the question. But, you know, process through that because people have different answers than I do. Why or why not? Is it plausible to follow Jesus without participating in the local church? And if you have questions about any of this stuff, like, let me know. Drop me an email. Facebook line. Here's my phone number. Write it down. You can text me. I don't care. All right. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll close our service with another song. Lord, thank you for the way in which you provided the church. As we'll see in a few weeks, Lord, you have call, crafted the church to be the hope of the world, uh, pointing people to your kingdom that is here, expanding that kingdom the way that Adam and Eve were supposed to do in the garden. Lord, as we consider the place of the church, may you help us to reflect and parse out the different ways in which we label church, the different ways we use this term church, but ultimately this community, this collective of people who together are on that same path, locking arms, going down the horizon of what it means to follow Jesus. May we allow that to hold ourselves, hold hold fast to our hearts, Lord. Lord, may you direct our steps in that path together. Lord, that we can be an adjustment for one another. When one of us starts to stray a little bit, we can be holding fast to one another. Not just as individuals, but as a family. Lord, we love you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.